And I mean, like, everyone's trying to tell me their issues, and I'm like, bitch, can you just cue up my drum? Welcome to Rebel Girls Book Club. I'm Harmony. And I'm Maggie. And we're here to take an intersectional, feminist approach to books from all over the spectrum. Bestsellers, we've got you covered. That one book from English class you hated while you read, but you can't forget? We've got that too. Comic books, nonfiction, it's all right here. So grab your tea, grab your blanket, and let's get rebellious about your favorite new reads. Hello. Hello. Oh, (laughs) that was in sync. (laughs) Welcome to Rebel Girls Book Club. I'm Maggie. I'm Harmony. And this week we're reading Red Clocks by Lenny Zumas. Yes, but only the first half. We're reading up to page 189, I believe. Maybe it's 187. Yeah, 187. What is a good summary for this half of the book, Maggie? Or what are your initial thoughts? I don't really have initial thoughts because this is a reread for me. So it was definitely different to go into it kind of knowing how it was going to end, I would say. But I would say a good summary for this is essentially that this is a book about five women who are really four and a half women, four women who are in present day, essentially dealing with a slew of very conservative new laws and trying to figure out and understand what it means to be a woman in this new world where their bodies are more regulated than ever. And then the half point of view is through a historic figure who was one of the first women to go on an Arctic expedition. And she made a lot of really important scientific breakthroughs there. But because of the time period, of course, it was like the 1800s, all of her findings were published under a male pseudonym, an acquaintance's name. So I didn't know that. Yeah. So one of the characters called the biographer is writing the biography of this woman. And so she comes out as like, another point of view that we see so she's like kind of got her own sections but then she's also intrinsically tied with what's happening with the biographer so that's why i say it's like four and a half rather than like five because she doesn't she like has her own sections but they're tied to what's happening with another character yeah before we get to each uh person's narrative we get a little bit of like a little blurb of what the biographer has written so far about this Arctic explorer. Yeah. And a lot of it, interestingly enough, while we're still talking about her, I'm sure we'll delve into her more. A lot of it is written almost like it's not entirely correct or factual. Like the biographer seems to take a lot of liberties and she'll, as we're reading these little blurbs, you'll have a sentence and then it will be crossed off and something else will be written. Yeah, and the biographer talks about, in her points of view, some places where she's, like, taken those liberties because there isn't a lot of information about this woman. In fact, the biographer is writing about her because there are no biographies of her. So her points of view, I think for me, that was something that was way more interesting and fruitful to read the second time around, was that I saw so much more how uh, Edivar's sections were influenced by the biographer's like mental state at the time and what she was thinking about and what she was dealing with. Oh, I have not noticed this because this is my first read and I'm not done with the book yet. But that is very interesting and I'll have to look into that for the second episode. 
I'm going to talk a little bit about my first impressions because this was a Maggie pick. Most of our season was picked by Maggie because Maggie reads a lot. Sorry. (laughs) No, it's good. It's good. I appreciate it. And we put it in between the talents and sours episodes because we were kind of doing like a dystopian month. So Maggie presented this to me as a dystopian novel. and Which was wrong. Which is, well, yeah, it's kind of wrong. I don't know. I'm in the second half and I can kind of see where that plays out more. But in this first half that we're focusing on right now, the dystopian aspects are really underplayed because it's more of a drama, as Mayu was talking about in her summary, about the four lives of women. And yes, these laws, like it's acknowledged that the laws in the United States have changed for women. And we start to get some of those consequences in terms of the biographer and the daughter, and eventually the mender, who at the end of this section ends up in jail. But for the majority of this section, what we're seeing is just like the four lives of four normal women kind of existing in our time. And I thought that was just really interesting. I also thought it was interesting that none of these women in their respective sections gets a name. You get their names from outside characters, and they each appear in each other's sections. And that's where we find out the names. Yeah, it's true. They're only referred as their titles, which I don't know how... I mean, like, I like that, and then I also feel kind of weird about it. So the titles are the wife, the daughter, the mender, and the biographer. Um, The biographer, whose name is Roe... Uh, is a high school history teacher who is, you know, writing a, this biography. Uh, the mender is definitely she's the a witch. most. Yeah, she's a witch. She's definitely, <laughs> but she's definitely also the most complicated of all of the women, just because all of the other women that we see are living very traditional lives, and the mender is living a very non-traditional life um, as a witch in the woods. Essentially, the wife is a wife and a mother and really, really struggles with that. And the fact that like, she doesn't really have a career or or a ton going for herself outside of being a wife. And Mm -hmm. the daughter is adopted and finds herself pregnant very shortly after some of the most controlling laws in the nation go into effect. Yeah. Yeah. And while we're talking about the daughter, real quickly like what we do know right from the get-go is that some people in the school have died from trying initially it's presented to us as like somebody some student fell down a staircase or something but we find out throughout this section that those were homemade abortions and there are other mentions of that of like women dying from homemade abortions but it's all in the periphery and secondary and also mostly from the point of view of the daughter that's where we hear about most of it yeah, but the biographer, I think, mentions Yasmin, who is the daughter's... Yasmin was one of the girls who tried to do a homemade abortion. And the biographer mentions her in the school in the beginning. But, like, we learn more about her from the daughter's perspective. And really, we just kind of learn about her because of her absence. Because she was somebody who is really important to the daughter and just isn't there anymore. And we don't know at this point what happened to her. Yeah. We just know that she tried to give herself a homemade abortion. And is now gone. Yeah. Yeah. So but back to the titles, though. I think that's interesting that you were like, you like it and you kind of don't like it. Because 
I think I feel the same, like from a writing stylized way, it, it feels really interesting and I like the way it flows. But it's also interesting, like the individual titles that are chosen for these women, because the biographer, as we've mentioned before, is a high school teacher. And you would think that maybe that would be like her societal title or hag or crone. She calls herself those words quite a lot throughout the narrative. And the mender would also be called something similar, I'm sure, like hag or crone or witch or or bitch or something like that. And yet she's given this positive title of mender. Versus the wife and the daughter, I feel like even though they both have different aspects of the char- their characters are really regulated in their titles to their societal roles. Yeah, I feel like I like it for the mentor and the biographer because they feel to a certain extent more empowering. Whereas for the wife and the daughter, it's very like restricted and restricting. But then to a certain extent, that also reflects their characters and their situations throughout the book. So like, I think that's why I feel conflicted on it. I think that I would probably have disliked it if we never found out their names at all. But Hmm. because we do and they do, you know, have like fully fleshed identities. um, I'm not bothered by the idea in general. I think it's interesting because I think it sort of represents how each woman thinks about herself. Like the Hmm. biographer wants to be a biographer right like she doesn't want to be limited to being a high school teacher I don't think she minds being a high school teacher but like her dream is to publish this biography and just like be a biographer and be done with it and the mender I think thinks of herself as a mender you know like she is there to help fix things and help fix people who are in trouble especially now where it's really difficult to get access to safe reproductive health care. And I think that the, for the wife, while she hates being regulated to the role of, of the wife, that's also how she thinks of herself. Mm-hmm. And the daughter is 16, I think. So she's young enough where like that is also still part of her primary identity is that she is somebody's daughter. And she really is bashing up against that the entire time because she's got this really complicated relationship with the fact that she's adopted and loves her adopted parents, but also feels a lot of conflict about them and is intensely curious about who her biological mother is, which we find out right at the end of this section. So like, I think the titles make sense in that way. I just wish that there could have been more for the wife and the daughter. Yeah, I agree. I think that's interesting that you placed it that way. Because originally I was thinking like, I was thinking when I first started that they didn't get names because it was like women are just placed into their roles and they don't get names. But I think it's interesting that you, that through dissecting this together, we've kind of discovered that like the biographer seems like a chosen title and so does the mentor. And I like your dissection of the wife and the daughter as well, because I was thinking that there was no way they could choose that for themselves. But you're right. The wife, that's a part of her inner conflict, right? Is that she thinks that all she is is a wife. And that's why she feels so miserable. She used to be a law student. And now she's like stuck with this kind of shitty guy and with two kids that she loves, but she doesn't get any time to herself. And the daughter, I think, is the most compelling for me because the daughter has so much promise and everything we learn about her character and how the other people view her character is like yes she's a young person but she's like this promising young person who's going to go on and be a scholar and she's like a super great babysitter and all of these other things but the idea that she is a daughter and that throughout this this part of the book she, she becomes pregnant 
I think is compelling because that's part of the reason why she can't keep the baby, right? Like she is a daughter. She's not meant to be a mother. She's not meant to be the caregiver. She is still young and full of life and like has yet to fulfill her promise. Yeah, absolutely. I I think that's a really useful add-on as well. I think it's interesting that you say that for you, the daughter is the most compelling character because I agree. But I think also for me, relatability-wise, where I am in my life, I, like, am smack dab in the middle of the wife and the biographer. Like, them, for me, I was just like, oh, wow. And it's interesting, too, because it was in a much different way than I felt two years ago when I first read it. But now, just, like, I found those two characters way more relatable and I think interesting than I did the first time I read it. I think the first time I read it, I was with the daughter all the way. And it's not like I disliked her character or anything this time. It's just that on reflection, on reread, those two other characters held more substance for me this go around. I get that. To be clear, what I meant is that the daughter's title was the most compelling for me. The most compelling character to me is definitely the mender. (laughs) I love the mender and everything about her. Yeah, the mender is a cool character. And I think that the mender also saves this book from being like completely cookie cutter run of the mill which I think is something that we're going to get into a little bit later because this book definitely has some very like white feminist things going on. And I think that the mender, even though she's also a white character, is one of the things that saves it from just being like a stereotypical, very cookie cutter, like yeah, white feminist handmaid's, <laughs> handmaid's tail spinoff almost, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Do you want to talk about the white feminist stuff or do we want to get more into the characters? We can start wherever. Well, let's start with the characters then, because this is a character drama. (laughs) Oh, while we're talking about the overarching characters, one of the things I noticed is that throughout, towards the the end of this section, as the biographer, the biographer is, is, as Maggie mentioned, struggling to get pregnant, and she can't do IVF or anything, because... There are new laws permitting. Yeah, there are new laws prohibiting it. Um, She can't really adopt as a single mom very easily. And soon, not yet, but soon it's going to be completely prohibited to her because of these new laws. But she continually throughout this section calls herself like crone or hag or something like that because she has this like feeling of drying up. And I thought that was really, really interesting because we do have some we do have an actual witch in this book. (laughs) Like, in a very typical historical sense. But we also have, like, the mother-maiden crone archetype, I think, with the wife and the daughter. And then we just have the witch, who I think kind of embodies all three, because there is a section in which the daughter meets her, and she says something like... Here, let's see if I can find it. Page 153. The person who opens the door isn't old is even almost pretty. Big green eyes, dark hair and coils around pale cheeks. Her outfit, velvet choker and coarse sack dress is Victorian prostitute meets Crow Magan. Is this even the witch? So that's one descriptor of her. And then she has another somewhere. She she talks about like how the the witch essentially isn't... She doesn't appear like anything that the daughter herself can name. And at one point, there is a descriptor of Jen that says she's like maybe 40, but we're not entirely 
Jin is 32. Sure. She's 32, but that's like the somebody else guesses that she's maybe 40 because yeah. she doesn't, they don't know whether she's old or pretty or not pretty. On page 157, this is still the daughter's POV. Her teeth are yellow and not very straight. She isn't pretty, the daughter decides, but she is bold looking, a person uninterested in pleasing to other persons. And this way, she reminds the daughter of Rose slash Miss. Better leave now. Dirk's coming. You know how to go? So that's interesting because Roe in this, if we're using this archetype, Roe is the crumb. And we we say earlier that she could be pretty. Jen could be pretty. But she also kind of looks like the crown. And that's why I think that she exists outside of all of this as kind of all three combined. She's like the Hecate character. She definitely is, especially because, and it it's dove into more in the second half of the book, but is also a thread in this first half. Jin also plays the role of the daughter and that she has a really complicated relationship with the female authority figures in her life. She loved her aunt Temple, misses her desperately, who ended up really raising her, but has a very complicated relationship with her mother who abandoned her and who had substance abuse issues. So she also throughout this is trying to find her place in really like as a daughter still, even though both of those authority figures are no longer in her life. And I mean, I guess it's, it happens at the end of this chapter and it relates to the mender. So I guess we might as well just say it, but at the end of this section, right before 187, we find out that Jin is the daughter's biological mother. So she really is, all three in one. And I think it's also interesting because Ro is specifically thinks of herself as a hag and, her, and a crone and is called elderly because of her relationship to motherhood. She's 43 when she's trying to get pregnant, which is a really difficult age to try and get pregnant and discovers that she has PCOS on top of this at during the novel. So all of her proneness so to speak is still in relationship to her relationship with motherhood i think that's a really good segue into something else that i wanted to talk about that we see mostly with the biographer but it is how women's health care is treated in the united states because roe finds out that she has pcos by simply talking to the mender and the mender you know works with herbs and stuff but she didn't even pass high school and even from the get-go, like the very first chapter of this book, we we are introduced to Rose Doctor. And she kind of talks about like how he's really handsome, but he never actually looks her in the eye and how the nurse is really dismissive of her as well. So like this is a problem that's probably been foiling her fertility attempts for h- however long that she's been doing this. At and least the three doc- years, I think. Yeah. Okay. And then the doctor like never noticed. and. This doesn't resonate with me on a personal level. I don't know about Maggie's experience with healthcare, but I have a close friend who has had a lot of ex- has had a lot of negative experiences with healthcare. And this is it's it just like recently she told me that she she's darker skinned and recently she told me that doctors didn't think she could get sunburnt. And this was like when we found out a few years ago that she had sun sensitivity. 
I remember her being on the phone with me describing a really bad sunburn. And I was like, honey, it sounds like, like, were you wearing sunscreen? It sounds like you got a sunburn. And like, this was the key to her discovering her ongoing health issue that was like plaguing her for many, many years. And it's so bad now because it's been so many years since the ongoing health issue started. And it's just like, it's gotten out of hand because the doctors never figured it out and never treated it. And so like, this is, it just makes me mad. Doctors don't respect women's pain and they don't look into things. And yeah. like the fact that you might think that like dark people can't get sunburned and you you have a fucking medical license is insane to me. <laughs> yeah, no, I've had similar experiences in a different vein. It wasn't in relationship to reproductive health necessarily, but I have extremely severe asthma to the point where when I was younger and I was really struggling with it, doctors thought I was faking it until I ended up in the ER <laughs> because I couldn't breathe, which is less of a problem for me now. But that's mostly because as an adult, my asthma is slightly less severe backslash. I just figured out how to like handle it for myself better. But it is something yeah. that in that sense, I have like intense personal experience with and like legitimately could have died because of doctors like inability to just like believe me what I said that like this is just how my body works and it's bad and it was compounded at the time by the fact that on top of that I was a kid so like being a girl and being in a place of like even less power was like a, a bad combo <laughs> it's a very bad combo yeah because you were a child it's just yeah doctors don't test for things and we as a society are not trained to advocate for ourselves but for people who are marginalized, it's really, really important that we do because the medical system isn't treating our complaints as though they're serious and they're not looking into the possibilities. Yeah. And it's, I think it's extra frustrating for Roe because like once the doctor finds out that she has PCOS, he's essentially like, we should discontinue this treatment, right? Like it, it's, it's really just not going to work for you. Um, and so she went it, to which once and already had this diagnosis because it was just somebody listening to her. Yeah. And also just like looking at her actually and noticing because it was a combination of like, that was what really struck me when you talked about the fact that the doctor never actually looks at her because Jin just actually looks at her and just like sees a couple of things that between that and actually listening, it was like, oh yeah, like you, you should probably ask about this and like push to be tested for it. And I think for me reading Rose part when it's confirmed that she has PCOS, it's just so heartbreaking because she spent so much time like at least three years we don't know how long she's been trying to have a kid for but she was put on the adoption list three years ago that's what we know which means that she has spent like probably hundreds of thousands of dollars on this treatment has had false hope every month and it's like well if somebody had just been paying attention when she started this like she could have saved all that time and all of that money and all of that heartache for herself mm -hmm. and she doesn't even really have a chance to process that grief because the deadline for her ability to even have a child is losing, looming so near that like she has to just immediately move on to plan B, plan C, plan D, or else risk not getting what she wants. It's very sad. While we're talking about Roe, well, I don't know. Do you want to talk more about the healthcare? Because part of that, too, I, wanna, I want to say that even though this is a slight dystopian novel, right, in, in a world where our healthcare has been restricted to the barest minimum. I think that there would still be a place 
like Maggie and I, I think, are people who have access to reproductive health care. We may not always, but like we have some access. It's not the best as it is in other countries, but like we have some health access. And in this in this universe, they really don't. They don't have any access to things like abortion or I've FB treatments like they have they have even less. But I think there would still be a place for someone like the mender because this dystopian world just isn't it's just not that far away from our world, right? Like doctors don't listen to women and we do still need people who are willing to listen and people who are willing to advocate and people who are willing to research enough of like the common solutions for things. Yes. That's all. Yeah, no, it's totally true. And I would say also that Harmony and I are lucky to have access to the things that we have access to because it's not equal all over the country and it's especially Mm -hmm. not equal depending on the color of your skin. (laughs) So Mm -hmm. as white women who live in predominantly, you know, blue states, while that doesn't always mean a ton for quality of access, it does mean for us that we do have more access to things like reproductive stuff and there's less red tape involved. Although we may not for for long, you know, like I'm turning 26. And I depend, I've depended since I've been having sex on Obamacare for birth control. And that's probably not going to be a thing. And I'm about to lose my insurance. So like, even as somebody in a place of privilege, I know that it's going to be really, really hard for me. And I can't imagine what it's like for people who live in even more restrictive states or who have who are even more marginalized by other, you know, superficial factors. Something that I think is interesting going off of that too, is that this book takes place in Oregon, which is similar, I would say, geographically, and for the most part, um, politically to where we both live, kind of depending. Um, There's a lot of crazies in Oregon, can confirm, my mom lives there. (laughs) There's a lot of crazies in Eastern Washington, too. That's the thing. Like, I live in Western Washington, but Part of the only reason the state is blue is because of like Seattle and the surrounding areas, right? Like Eastern Washington isn't like that. So Oregon is definitely like a 50-50, but it's, it's more likely that the woman in this novel would have similar access to things that Harmony and I currently have access to, or at least slightly less restrictive things. And it does make me wonder what this novel would be like if it took place in like Oklahoma or Texas or any of the other states we've seen, Ohio recently trying to pass really, really, really restrictive abortion laws. Or if we were following for Black women, or just women who were not white in general, what it would be like. I think it is worth talking about the white feminism aspects of this book now, because we are following for five, really, if we're we're putting Edivar in there, five (laughs) white women. And there are a couple characters of color, but... They have very, very small roles. One of them is an Asian man who does call out the white mate characters a little bit on some of their like more obvious microaggressions and things like that. But his conversations are all based on things that don't have to do with the central themes of this novel, I would say, because he is a man and because he isn't dealing with like these restrictive laws. And then the other character of color is Yasmin. And she's gone. <laughs> we see yeah. uh, we see a little bit more of her as the daughter remembers her in the second half of the novel. And in that part, we do get a little bit more like relevant, I would say, cultural criticism to these themes of reproductive health. But like for the most part, this novel is about three middle class white women 
who are all living relatively privileged lives and who are so caught up kind of in their own melodramas, to be honest, that like they really don't see or recognize that privilege and no one really pushes back against them on it, especially not in the first half of the novel. And I think that that's, for me, one of the big things that kept this novel from being like, full five stars like I totally love it it's just that like we're just like we're just not dealing with a very diverse cast of characters like Jin has the most colorful background and is definitely living in a different economic bracket but it's also like partially by choice and it's it doesn't like her point of view while it makes the novel more interesting doesn't really address any sort of like diversity within it you know yeah I think for me That was a big red flag, but also even more than like the lack of diverse cast of characters. It was, I had conflicting feelings about the issues presented because these are all, these are for middle class in various ways, but like for middle class white ladies and their main issues while important and valid does look at like this very narrow slice of the pie it is the fact that like reproductive rights are being rolled back in the u.s and i read this book right i'm still reading it but i read this first half while also reading hood feminism by mickey kendall and that's like a book that's all about the system the systemic issues that plague women primarily of color but women uh everywhere and why these things are a big deal and how the systemic issues seem less important to women that are less marginalized because we have more privileges and for me that was the biggest thing like even more so than the diversity is that like throughout the first half at least we're not really we're not really pushing back on the system much other than this like really small piece of the pie we're not offering health care for everybody like that's not a part of the dystopian aspect there's just like a variety of things there's no like universal basic income or anything like that and part of that is because these women's lives are so narrow and they are focused on their own dramas and I think that it's valid it just sat with me poorly because like even as a white lady and a person with privilege like I feel like the system is out to get me (laughs) and I feel like the system is out to get other people much worse, but like, I would like to see, I would like to see more literature and I'm sure we're going to read more literature that deals with the craziness that is our American system and also global system that like works to punish us on an economic level as well as like, just because we're women. Yeah, absolutely. And I think also part of what sat poorly about it was the fact that I think that Rose's character could have really been placed to do some of that work, Mm -hmm. especially in recognizing her own privilege in comparison to others. And just like the author just didn't go there, you know, Um, it, it just felt like it didn't push far enough or hard enough with the characters that were like in a good place to do that, right? Like, To a certain extent, I could understand why maybe the wife's character wasn't the place to do that because she is a very, very stereotypical, like middle class white lady. But Mm -hmm. Roe was really out there, like being publicly criticized by a lot of the town for being like an outspoken feminist and things like that. Mm -hmm. And it just felt like because her view was so narrow, and we were talking about such a small slice of the pie. it, It just didn't feel like it went far enough and it could have gone a lot farther. And also I think that like, when we're talking about reproductive health, we were also talking about a very 
specific part of reproductive health here because it was specifically about pregnancy and motherhood. Mm-hmm. And on the one hand, I feel like that is a strength of the book because it is very focused and you get to dive into it. But then on the other hand, like there's so many other parts about reproductive health that are as much or even more applicable to more marginalized communities than the ones that we're dealing with, like access to birth control or basic health care and stuff like that, kind of like what you were going on about that, like if we had expanded, I think, just a little bit, we could have had a more inclusive and well-rounded book that didn't feel quite so focused, I think, on white ladies and their problems, even if they happen to still be the main characters. Yeah, yeah. And we've discussed this before. We discussed it with our friend Johani, who works in the publishing industry and actually like is a sensitivity reader. So is here to like make sure that things are inclusive. And like, I don't feel that I have gotten my answer for like what the right thing for white people is to do other than to just like be silent and listen when the time comes and then, you know, per, like promote other people's work. So I don't think it's necessarily wrong that the main characters reflected the author's experience. But like Maggie was saying, I do think that there were ways that we could have opened this book up in a healthy way to like reflect other people's experiences as well. Or like she could have included a person of color main character and gotten a sensitivity reader and like had other people there to help I feel like and I feel like if we had more of Yasmin it would have also been a much more balanced book yeah part of the reason that she isn't included in the book is because she is gone and we don't know what's happened to her and things like that but I do think that we could have kept some of that same tension and drama for the daughter's character while having her also still be a part of the daughter's life actively while the book was happening that's just like an after the fact thing that I was thinking about but like it would have, I think, really helped balance things out here. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I still think it's a valid book and, like, worth reading. But the problem is that, like, I don't see enough literature that is focused on things like reproductive care or women's issues in this way that is, like, so narrowly focused on the lives of women that is that is tackling the whole system, right? Or that is like from different, more diverse perspectives. So would you like some recommendations? (laughs) Well, yeah, no, I know that they exist, but like for the most part, I don't know. I know I've talked about this before, like, but when I'm looking for like a witchcraft book, I don't know if I've talked about it on the podcast, right? I think you have, yeah. Okay, yeah. When I'm looking for like a book on witchcraft, they're almost primarily like I just grab the first thing and the first thing I grab is almost entirely by a white woman. Like, yes, there are people of color's voices that exist, but in comparison to how many white voices we have, it's so far and few in between. And so like, if this book, because it is such a great book, could have just like included a little bit of that, that would have been great. And also, I would like to see more books like this by people of color, because I think that the perspective would be different and valid and more inclusive, because those characters would be dealing with more. I think that this is also coming back to a publishing issue because like I could tell you off the top of my head, like six or seven books by women of color that deal with really similar topics. They're just not as famous as Red Clocks is and they're not getting pushed as much, Um, Mm -hmm. which I think that to be kind of fair, Red Clocks isn't the most like famous book out there or anything. I only have it or only heard of it because I it was part of a subscription service that I used to be uh, subscribed to and it was recommended to me. But mm-hmm. like, 
I bet you more people have heard of Red Clocks than like The Farm by Joanne Ramos or something like that. Or even the book that I read last week, uh, Breasts and Eggs by Mieko Kawakami, is all about essentially like an IVF journey for a woman of color in Japan. It's just that they aren't giving like being given the same oomph. They aren't being compared to The Handmaid's Tale. You know, they aren't they aren't riding that like wave that a lot of these other books are like The Power like by Naomi Alderman is, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, because like I think that there, not to say that there could there could always be more of these uh, books by women of color. I just think that part of it is that there's a lot more publishing oomph right now to support these books that are written by white women because they're so easy to compare to like The Handmaid's Tale, which is like riding this crest of popularity, which isn't yeah. anything against this author or anything. I think it just talks about like this larger issue that we're seeing in publishing right now. Yeah, and that being said. Just like I believe that, like, this book is valid. Like, I love The Handmaid's Tale. I think that's super valid. That did open a lot of conversations. And that is such a big reference for a reason. Like, we need that in the canon. But the canon needs to open up. <laughs> yeah, for sure. For sure. I think all of this is to say is that just as it is with pretty much any book we criticize, I think you and I both really enjoyed this book. Like, for me, I yeah. really, really liked it. It's just like... It's a beautiful I, I, book. It is. And it's beautifully <laughs> written. The writing is gorgeous. It's just one of those things where it's like it could have been even better if it had been more inclusive, if it it talked about a slightly broader set of topics. Yeah, I agree. Okay. Do we want to transition onto another topic now that we have? Yeah. Do you want to talk about the wife for a little bit? Because I feel like we've talked at least a bit. We've talked a lot about Roe and we've talked a bit about the daughter and the mender, but we haven't really talked about the wife at all. Do you want to switch there first and then go back to a different character? Yeah. So... One of the interesting things about the wife that I noticed, aside from her, like, personal play, is that she has this weird sort of, like, envy competition thing with Ro, and Ro has it for her as well. It's it's mutual. (laughs) I think that's relevant for the wife's character, though, because she, she has everything, right? She doesn't have to deal in the same way that the daughter or Roe, or even eventually the mender who ends up getting arrested for supposedly, you know, helping someone get an abortion, which she didn't do. But like, she doesn't have to deal with these like laws in the same way. Her problem is the plight of the modern, the modern middle-class lady. She has children that she loves, but she can't like get out of this, this idea that all she is is the wife. And she doesn't feel like she she doesn't really I mean I don't think she does she doesn't really have any like emotional support either that supports her personhood no no and she's looking for it desperately from her husband Didier um who she's trying to convince this entire time that they should go to couples counseling she's tried to ask him before but he just genuinely doesn't think that things are as bad for her as they are like legitimately because every time they have a conversation about it, he's like, Oh, you know, it's like, it's this, it's this. I don't know if you've gotten to the part in the second half yet, but you do find out that he is legitimately just stupid about it. Like he, he actually just doesn't understand. And it's bad. The the wife has struggled with suicide ideation, suicidal ideation this entire time because she feels so divorced from who she is and who she feels like she should be. I think something that I felt frustrated with about the wife is that she, to me, she felt like the most cookie cutter character Mm -hmm. because I can't even tell you how many times I've really read the story of the woman 
who gets knocked up right before she's about to like do something great in her career to a man she doesn't know very well and then ends up sort of like pigeonholed in this. And on the one hand, I feel like that probably really is a common occurrence for like women everywhere and is relatable. But on the other hand, I do feel like I wish that something more was done with the wife's character a little bit. Okay. I don't know because I haven't finished the book. <laughs> I mean, she's just, it's going to sound terrible, but like in many ways, she's like, she's just the wife. And I feel like if we had given her any kind of personality or storyline outside of that really basic cookie cutter situation, we could have even started addressing some of the things that Harmony and I were just talking about. Oh, okay. Because she is just so... Whenever I read a book like this, she is a she is a character I expect to see. If that makes sense. That does make sense. I do think, like you were saying before, that it is valid because it is something that is so prevalent within our society. And to circle back to what I was talking about before with the comparison thing, like I think that is important, especially for her character, because she does have that privilege, but because she is still like locked in. And I know that this is something that we throughout feminist literature talk about ad nauseum, especially when we're like talking about literature or issues that have to deal with primarily white ladies is like the idea of being trapped in the wife role. But I do think that it does set us up for this sort of this sort of like competition and hierarchy that takes away from solidarity. And I think that I know I've said this before. I think that's why we have so many white ladies who voted for Trump and shit like that. And I think that's why we have so many white ladies who continually oppress people of different colors and like are blatant about it. Not because they're not because like their oppression makes that okay because it obviously doesn't, but I do think that the structure really sets us up to fail. Like, it wants to keep us separate, and it wants us to hate other women. Yeah, for sure. And I think that my point is more just, like, from a writing perspective, I think that we could have still had this entire conversation and talked about all of this and still had the wife not be quite such a cliche, you know? (laughs) And, like, that, I think, and, like, that isn't, that isn't to detract from, like, the validity of her story, because it is very valid, and it is common. I just mean it in the sense that, like, I think it would have been a more compelling story to read about if she had just had like one other thing going on. I think something though that's also interesting about the comparison issue is that both women to a certain extent use Didier against each other. Like we mm-hmm. find out that uh, the wife and her husband obviously, yeah, I mean like they talk about their friends, right? They both kind of judge Roe for her, like her journey trying to get pregnant and things like that. Which I think compounds the fact that the wife really envies her, her freedom and her ability to do things. They also judge her for the fact that she's writing her biography. But at the same time, Didier and Roe are are friends. They work together. Didier is one of Roe's seemingly like closest friends at work, right? Like they Mm -hmm. hang out as a threesome, including the wife and all whose name is Susan. And also as a duo or with like their other work friends a lot of the time. And they also talk about the wife, like, (laughs) not necessarily with quite such a blatant judgment, because I think that that would offend Didier's husbandly sensibilities. Yeah, his his, his ideals about who he thinks he is as a man and a husband. But like, it's still there. And he, in conversation with Susan alone, is very judgmental of Susan and her ability to keep home. Susan 
I think really struggles, I think like many people, because she's only doing this one thing right now. It's something that she wishes she wasn't really doing. Not that I think she wishes she wasn't a mom, but I think she just wishes that she was like a lawyer and a mom or like, you know, had a career too. And I think she feels guilty about that because that would mean leaving her children and making her a bad mom, which is another thing we hear about all the time within feminist circles. Well, I think also like it, it gets even more compounded because she still feels like a bad mom and it's what she's doing right now. Mm-hmm. And Didier makes her feel bad about it because she's not doing enough around the house or whatever. Like he says at one point, like, I know that you have a lot, like, I know that you have a lot going on, right? Like, I know that you're busy throughout the day, but would it kill you to clean the toilet? I counted 13 pubic hairs on it or something. And then he talks about, like, whenever she asks him to help, he'll be like, oh, well, I was working all day. Yeah. So, like, (laughs) he doesn't, so, like, he doesn't help. And then on top of that, she's, she doesn't just compare herself to Roe either. They have their daughter, Bex's best friend, Shell. Their family is called the perfects within their household (laughs) because they seem so perfect. And it's a standard that Susan can't keep up and whatever. So Susan has, like, these comparison issues that Didier makes worse So I think for Susan, it gets like all compounded into the fact that like she wishes that she was a mom and a career and she feels like that would make her a bad mom. But also she feels kind of like she's a bad mom already and she's just doing the mom thing right now. So like there's no there's really no winning for her. And that's why she feels so trapped. And like that trappedness comes out in this idea that like she she literally metaphorically wants to break through the guardrail and drive off of the road, which like on a uh, from a suicidal ideation point is really scary and difficult but also metaphorically is like she's literally trying so hard to get off of this pre-conscribed road that she's just kind of been set on and is driving on and wants to break through the guardrail and like make this new terrain for herself. And she just can't right now. It's very sad. I don't know why, but that character, like, I know that she could be more compelling and I do, even though I'm not done with the book yet, so I don't know everything. Like, I do kind of wish there was more to her, but like that is... That's a, that character makes me the saddest. Ro might make you the saddest. And Ro makes me sad too. There's lots of sadness in this book, but like that character makes me the saddest. No, the wife definitely <laughs> makes me the saddest, for sure. I think also the idea of like her being a more compelling character is partially also just coming from the fact that this is a second reread for me. And like I felt mm-hmm. like I got I felt like I gleaned a lot from all of the other characters. But the wife's story felt a little bit more standardized the second time. I think that's the word I'm looking for, is that her story and her character felt pre-conscribed and kind of standardized. That makes sense. That makes sense. But that doesn't mean it wasn't sad. She's a sad woman who really is just trying her best and who loves her kids and yet still struggles with them because kids are hard (laughs) and just doesn't have any kind of outlet. Yeah, yeah. And she, like, doesn't have, I know we've talked a lot about this on the podcast, too, but, like, solidarity is our thing, and I think that's the secret to um, really overthrowing everything, capitalism, patriarchy, you know, white supremacy, everything. But there's, like, she, she more than the other characters, I feel, doesn't have anyone. And where I'm at at the book, at least, like, she still doesn't have anyone, like, you know. The daughter had Yasmin, she doesn't anymore, but then she has Ash and she has like, she has adult mentors that she could turn to and tries to turn to. And like, Ro has her friends. I mean, everyone in this book kind of feels a little bit isolated, but the wife is definitely like the most isolated, despite seemingly having the most. Exactly. And I think also with the wife, she has a lot of friends, I would say, but like is 
she has difficulty. There, yeah, exactly. And then also on top of that, I think because everyone's in this really terrible cycle of like jealousy and comparison, like it's hard to reach that solidarity to the women that she does have around her. Um, mm-hmm. Which I feel like is, I think especially in motherhood, something that's like really common when you're, um, it, it reminds me of the moms I know. And She's also one of the only characters that doesn't want to be isolated. Like, the mender wants to be left the fuck alone. (laughs) She craves certain kinds of human interaction. That's why she has caught her. That's why she was happy to have Lola in her life. But, like, she was, she's happy to see them a couple of times a week and, like, primarily live alone with her animals. That's where she's happy. Even Ro talks about the fact that, like, she has no desire for partnership. It's something that she's in conflict with with her therapist and pretty much everyone she knows, her dad, the entire time, is that she wants a kid for reasons that to her are are even still a little fuzzy, but like have Mm -hmm. nothing to do with like a lack of romantic partnership in her life. She is set in herself. She is good with being alone. Her want for a child is separate from from those things even though everyone tries to tell her that they aren't and the daughter has is still isolated but has a lot more support than the wife does at the very least and the wife is really the only character that's out there like trying so hard to make connections who desperately needs connections and just can't i mean hell to a certain extent even ivoire and her story has more support because while she's isolated from her family, especially her mother, eventually she does get what she wants, right? Like she gets on that Arctic ship and she connects with and makes friends with her fellow sailors because they're ultimately all out there in the middle of the fucking Arctic, stranded, losing fingers left and right. Like she create, she's able to create that connection for herself. And the wife is like part of this larger tapestry but almost feels like this string that's just like connected to everyone else through her children and that if those strings weren't there, she would just be like sad and and, and alone. <laughs> oh. Yeah. Do you want to talk about any other characters? I feel like we haven't talked about the daughter or the mender enough because the mender has the mo- the mender is where the plot is really happening in the first half of the novel. Um, as with the daughter, like they have the most, I would say, drama because Roe and the wife are really dealing with things that they've been dealing with for a long time and the mender and the daughter are the ones where it's like there are new things happening and we haven't talked about that plot yet so do you want to start with one or the other let's talk about the mender first because i just love the mender i love that she's a little bit crazy and i love that like we get this really beautifully written we get this really beautifully written story and then we have the mender come along and i think this is the first time she appears on her favorite word is fucker mo it is. Fucker Mo. And it's on page 14. So we have from the hall 10 to blah, 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 blah. Uh, we just have her. And yeah, she's talking about like Fucker Mo. And she's talking about her cat. And like right away, the narrative becomes a little bit less clear. Like we're talking about a cat, but then we don't know that we're talking about a cat right away. And that was just kind of what I got from the mender. She's like, she's the second person after the biographer. But the biographer is, her narrative seems pretty clear for the most part. And then, like, we have the narr- the mender on page 16. 
Silly bitch, trees are not nothing. Nor are cats, goats, chickens, owls, foxes, bobcats, black-tailed deer, long-eared bats, red-tailed hawks, dark-eyed juncos, bald-faced hornets, varying hairs, morning cloak butterflies, black vine weevils, and souls fled from their mortal casings, alone, human-wise. Bitch, by the way, is her patient that she just treated. It's just like, yeah. And the mender, her sexuality is fun. Like, she's a lesbian. So we got some representation there. But also, we know that she did have sex, at least with Cotter. And they're just friends now. And it's just wild. The mender's wild. That's all I have to say. And she's a stereotypical witch. She is the wise woman in the woods. She is. She's the one people go to for all kinds of treatments. Not, and I think it's also important to say that it's not just for reproductive health. The Mm mentor knows all kinds of things and helps people with all kinds of things. And pretty much she doesn't accept money. She she trades for things, the things that she needs for the most part to get by because for the most part, she lives off the land. I think something else that's interesting about the mentor is that it's also said very explicitly that she finds like traditional living very overwhelming like there's a scene where she goes into the supermarket and she's overwhelmed because everything is so clean and white and also very loud and the mender is just unapologetically and explicitly herself the entire time and it's really refreshing I think especially in comparison to the wife who is so desperately trying to be who society tells her that she should be and kind of, I don't want to say failing at it because I feel like that's like too much of a judgment call, but feels like she's failing at it at the very least. The mender is just out there being like, nah, this is me. This is who I am. This is how I talk. This is how I think. And these are the things that I know and that I'm interested in. The reason that the mender didn't graduate high school isn't because she's not smart. It's just because she didn't care to put her energies into things that she thought were useless but she's great at her herbal medicine practice like really well respected and something hard about the mender's story is that cotter to a certain extent seems like the only person who really fully accepts her for who she is he doesn't push her about the fact that he doesn't that she doesn't want to be with him anymore like they are just friends he helps her take care of her business like they're they're good friends and she has a romantic relationship with lola who do we know in this half of the story who lola is i don't know so we'll address that maybe later later because she's a big part of the next story but we do know that there is a lola and that lola and the mender fuck yes and we know that lola is the reason that the mender ends up in jail yeah and it's really difficult because the mender seems to genuinely like Lola. And in the places that we see them together, Lola seems to also generally genuinely like the mender. But she can't accept the fact that the mender legitimately wants to be alone. And like, as much as she enjoys what they have, like, she's not gonna just like, suddenly want to live a more suburban life or live with people or anything. Like, she wants to keep things the way that they are. And Lola betrays her because of it. And it's, like, really hard to see. Oh, really? I haven't read. Is that not what you got out of that first part? No, I didn't get that she was betrayed because of it. I thought that Lola I thought it was was implied in that first part, at least. Okay. I thought she was just coerced, but I don't know. We'll see. I suppose that that's also also possible. I think I just felt so deeply for the mender that I was like, the betrayal! But you're right that it probably was more likely coercion. Um, To go back to what you were saying before about the mender, um, 
you were saying that she's like the only one that is herself. And to go back to the mother main, to go back to the mother maiden crone archetype, like the the mender is witch because the mender is the embodiment of other. And you also said that like she makes this book less cookie cutter and maybe a little bit like less white feminist, even though she is a white lady. And we know that white ladies have been co-opting witchcraft for forever um, and were witches as well. But like she is important because she is everything that the other characters can't be because of society. And she just is the embodiment of other. And like she's punished for it. We see at the end of this section that she she's jailed for daring to be herself. Yeah, and for practicing um, medicine without a license, essentially. Which I do have a question from a legal standpoint, which I didn't have a chance to Google. So, uh, uh, listeners, please tell me. But uh, do you know, like, she was charged with medical malpractice, we find out at the Mm -hmm. end of this book. Can you be charged with medical malpractice malpractice if you aren't a licensed medical practitioner? Ooh, I don't know. I should know this based off of other work that I've done, like professionally. But let's see. We don't, we don't, don't have know. to Google it. But just like, it was something I was thinking about. It was just like, I feel like you would probably be charged with something else, but I don't know enough about law. So if you know, email us at rebelgorsbookclub at gmail.com. Yeah. I mean, along those lines, though, I imagine because herbal medicine is an accepted place and because it is just medical professional like if maybe you can be a medical professional even if you aren't licensed right because we don't accept a lot of herbal medicine as like license for doctoring I think that's changing at least a little bit because I know that a lot of holistic medical practitioners do have like certificates and degrees that let them treat other people they do yes a lot of people do the validity is under question yeah I just yeah I just mean from like from like a a charging standpoint yeah I don't know because it does say medical professional but maybe yeah I don't know I should know this listeners I should know this so tell me educate me (laughs) I was just curious it's like such a nitpicky thing but like it did also seem to be interesting that they're willing to validate her practice so to speak that way when it comes to punishing her and yet you know look down on it in all other cases yeah yeah, and she's she's charged for medical malpractice, but if you didn't get this from what we've read so far, like she did not she did not perform what they're claiming she performed. No, <laughs> and it's and it's interesting and tricky also because she's essentially she's essentially being charged for a botched abortion. And it's tricky because in this scenario, this isn't what Lola was coming to her for. Um, mm-hmm. she's coming to her because she's being abused and needs help treating it in a way that will keep other people from not asking questions essentially but the mender does help perform abortions and does participate in reproductive health so it is one of those tricky things where as she's navigating all of this it's like well in this specific scenario no (laughs) yeah one of the other things that's interesting about the mender is that she says that she's descended from pirates yes quite frequently i believe that happens in this section and we also learn about her heritage and she is descended from a witch from salem and i'm not sure aside from like oh this is witchcraft that's cool what that means in terms of like the larger arc of her story and the symbolism of her as a character but this is something that is very pertinent to her as a character she comes from a witch and a pirate I, I, maybe it's just more otherness. I don't know. What do you think? 
I think it might be more otherness. I think it also adds sort of, it adds like this weird almost validity to what she does, I think, because it is ancestral, mm-hmm. at least in her mind. Like it's, it's pa- and at the very least, it seems passed down for generations. Temple, her aunt, teaches her all of this. So I think it offers her a little bit of like validity in what she's up to. I feel like this question is more important in the second half of the story, though, because while we know that she's descended from the witch and the pirate at this time, I think it becomes more relevant to her character and the plot in the second half. I think, though, something that's interesting is that in comparison to the daughter, for example, it also adds an interesting dichotomy because Jin draws so much strength like Jin can trace her lineage back forever and the Mm -hmm. daughter her daughter really struggles with the fact that she can't and she doesn't at this point in the book at least I don't know if she does in the future but like she doesn't have that same sort of like power to her she doesn't have the ability to be other yeah she's still just trying to like live her little high school life which like fair enough you know, she's she's really just trying to, like, become a doctor, um, <laughs> which is funny. You know, it is extra funny, too. I just put this together now, which, like, probably makes me a little dumb. But the daughter is obsessed with the idea of her mother also being a doctor and, like, solving paralysis or something like that. And it turns out that her mother is kind of a doctor, just not in the way that she thinks of it. Um, I just put yeah. that together. <laughs> no, it's very cool. But... I do think that it, it showcases some of that tension, at least for the daughter, while she is struggling to figure out who she is, partially because she doesn't know who her biological mother is. And she also recognizes the fact that that's unfair, the daughter does, because the daughter doesn't have the same curiosities about her biological father and, like, talks at least a little bit about the fact that, like, that's probably uncool. <laughs> like, yeah, she- why do predature on the idea of like maternal like her biological maternal mother that is interesting because the daughter for the most part seems to have a pretty good relationship with her adopted parents they are much more conservative than she is as a human but like she has she loves them and appreciates them and they do really love her and it seems like she is closer with her mother her bio her adopted mother than she is her father so it is interesting that like these fantasies are all surrounded by someone who is giving her the most love and attention and care. Which is kind of interesting because we actually see her have the most conversations with her father. Oh, really? Yeah. That is interesting. (laughs) But they're not necessarily always like explicitly positive conversations. Like they're not negative either, but they're, they're filled with more tension of like pushback and stuff because the daughter disagrees with all of these laws. And I think did before all of this started happening to her as well, like before she found out that she was pregnant. I think it's implied that Yasmin influenced her a lot too. Oh yeah, for sure. sure. (laughs) And so did Ro. Yeah, but I I mean, to be fair, like, when you're 16, I feel like that's the way it goes, is that, like, you're raised in slight, a slightly more conservative household, and then you have more liberal friends, and they, they push you to things. That was that was my experience, at least. Yeah, I was gonna be like, that was not my experience. <laughs> but I just meant it in the sense that, like, kids really influence each other in that way, as everyone's trying to figure out who they are. She's also just, like, really intelligent. So I feel like it's hard for her to come out on the conservative side because she is thinking about these things. And she's just really, like, she's she's somebody who thinks about things. (laughs) Yeah, she is somebody who thinks about things. And she has a really hard time divorcing the fact that, like, she just has a really hard time 
contending with all of this and with her adoption simultaneously, partially because her dad specifically keeps throwing in her face the fact that like, well, if your birth mom aborted you, like we wouldn't have you, right? Like think about all the babies that like all the people who want to have kids and can't and stuff. And like, that's a real big conflict for her Mm -hmm. that is interestingly not super addressed in her part, which is the uh, part of the law that says that you can't adopt unless you're essentially two heterosexual parents. Yeah, that is interesting. He calls her pigeon. He loves her very much. It's very heartbreaking. Yeah, it's very like, I don't want to say heartbreaking, but like it is her conflicts to me with her parents and with all of this feel very realistic to me of like a teenager, especially a teenager in a hard situation. Yeah, because she's she's a little girl, right? And she has had a good life and she has had a privileged upbringing and she does have two parents who love her a lot. But I think that's part of why the abortion is so necessary for her because she, like the the fact that she wonders about her biological parents is something that she desperately does not want for another child. And she herself doesn't want to be the one wondering. Yeah. yeah. And so it makes you really think to me, at least about the mender and like, how on the one hand I understand totally why adoption was the right choice for her um but on the other hand it it does make you a little sad when you realize how much Jin specifically is able to draw all of this strength and courage and knowledge from herself on the knowledge of her ancestry that like her daughter at this point at the very least like can't have and and is struggling with not having yeah, I wonder if that changes later on in the book. Don't tell me anything. No spoilies. But <laughs> yeah, that will be very interesting to delve into. Because the mender, I think it's talked about at this point, because like the mender, the mender knows that Maddie is her daughter and she stalks Maddie a little bit. And like Maddie came here kind of out of circumstance and wasn't ever supposed to be in the same vicinity as the mender and now like the mender wonders a lot and when maddie comes to her the mender like feels like she can't perform an abortion because it's her flesh which is also how how did you feel about that i as someone that's not like done with this book i'm feeling really conflicted about what the messaging for like abortion is because it's like stated that it should be a thing but also at the end of this section, like we know that Roe wants a baby and we know that Maddie has one and it kind of feels like like that should be the natural conclusion. And I just don't, I as a person just don't know how to deal with that. And I don't and know what the book is telling me. <laughs> I think that you will know what the book is telling you by the end. Uh, to okay. me, by the end of the novel, there's a very clear message. Um, but I do think that Jin... It's interesting because it's not that she flat out refuses to perform an abortion. She feels like she needs time to think about it because it's her flesh. And because she gets arrested, that's why the abortion yeah. can't happen. But yeah. it is difficult because you, I, I really ended up disliking Jin in that moment. Because oh. it just felt, well, not like disliking, but like, it's not to me a parent's place to tell a anybody what to do with their body to begin with but I think Mm -hmm. especially like Jin you know like she gave up her rights as a parent um when she put her kid up for a closed adoption so it seems to me just like 
on the one hand, I understand that she was never supposed to be in contact with Jin ever. And by that, I mean, like, it was a closed adoption and she was adopted out more than 75 miles away. It was a coincidence that her family relocated to this area. But that doesn't, just because Jin is having conflicting feelings about all of these things now doesn't give her the right to fuck with Maddie's life, in my opinion. And it's not like I'm extra angry at her or anything, especially because it's not like she could have known that she was going to get arrested and that she couldn't, like, reach out to Maddie later to make a decision. But it Mm -hmm. just felt very, like, I don't know. It felt a little selfish. But hey, sometimes parents are selfish. Like, that's just kind of what it is. (laughs) That's true. Along the lines of Maddie, like, more than just, like, her pregnancy, I feel like for the majority of this section, we're really just, like, witnessing her love story. And she is... She is a compelling character because, like, she is kind of hard and slippery to grasp. She smokes. She's out there having sex with teenage boys in cars. But she's also, like, this. Yeah, unsafe sex. Well, I don't know what the birth control situation in this world looks like. But that's not really talked about yet. But she also, like. They had access to condoms at the very least. They do talk about that in this first part. Okay. Okay. Yeah. But like it starts off as a love story. And then we learn who Maddie is. And we learn that she's the kid always asking questions in Rose class. And we learn that like, she's also the kid that babysits for the wife. So she's like the super responsible, perfect girl, who's also really, really smart and intelligent and willing to challenge things. She's obsessed with saving the sperm whales. There's just like, there's a lot to her and she's really hard to pinpoint into like one archetype. I think that to me, she's probably one of the most well-rounded characters. Like her and Ro to me feel so much just like whole humans. Yeah. Which I think is just a, a benefit of the fact that like, it, it's like good writing. Yeah. Um, And I think also, as we talked about, I think there's a reason to a certain extent that the wife doesn't feel quite as much like a whole human. And it's not because it's bad writing. It's because that's something the wife is struggling with. Mm-hmm. And then the mender is because she embodies the mother, the crone and the, the maiden simultaneously. Like she feels whole in a different way. Yeah. She's yeah. She doesn't feel like a realistic human because she's so different. She's so metaphorical, but like it works in all of this context. And I think part of the reason it works is because of the writing style. This is something I wanted to mention. And it's, you mentioned it a little bit when you pulled up that uh, thing with Roe, but I think the part of what may, or uh, with the mender, but part of what makes this book so compelling is that the, the exposition is extremely like beautiful, flowy, kind of flowery writing And then the way people speak, the dialogue, very realistic, like very just representative of how people actually speak and they're crude and they're ridiculous and they say this weird shit Um, and they fight. And to me, it feels almost like this metaphor for like expectations versus reality, which is really what all four of the characters are trying to contend with anyways of like, this is how like they have these very carefully constructed dreams of how their life should go and how they expected life to go and then there's the reality of it and like to me that balance was just really struck beautifully in like the the sentence by sentence i agree is there anything else we want we're reaching an hour and 15 is there anything else we want to mention because we do have a whole other episode that we can delve into some of these themes with yeah i think i'm good for now Okay. Because I, 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 th- I think that's some of the other things I want to talk about make more sense to wait until the whole book is read. Yeah, I get that. Okay. Well, we don't do whether or not this was a feminist book because it's just one part. 
and uh, uh, we do homework. We do homework. Do you have any homework, Maggie? Uh, what is my homework? What is my homework? I would like to donate to Planned Parenthood. Donating to Planned Parenthood is very good. And also, like, any sort of healthcare center around you. Like, where Maggie and I went to college, there was no Planned Parenthood, but there was this great place called Tapestry, and they're awesome. And they also work a lot with um, helping people who are addicted to drugs get access to, what's it called? That thing that saves you from heroin overdoses. Oh, the drug that's just with an N? Oh, I can't remember yeah. what it's called. It's narcolixin or something like that. That's what it's spelled like. I don't know. <laughs> I, know what you, I know what you're talking about. I just don't, I, I don't know the name off the top of my head. Well, they do a lot of good for the community in terms of health. And they do a lot, like, that's where I got my IUD. They do a lot for people who don't have access to good health insurance or, um, other mediums and they that's the best doctor experience I've ever had is with those ladies so Planned Parenthood is great other organizations like that that are focused on reproductive health and that like are focused on healthcare for people who are marginalized or who cannot afford healthcare otherwise are great organizations that are focused for you know people of color health like health for for people of color great yes you should donate to that I am not going to do that right now because I have very little funds. What am I going to do? I am going to, last week I said that I was going to, well, yeah, I'm going to focus more on making my dreams a reality and continue my activism work as well. But also like I'm, it's, it's almost school time for me. And so I really need to like center myself and work on like who I want to be as a person and how I'm going to make that happen because these women feel trapped. And that is something that I am terrified of feeling like as a woman. And so I just need to work on like, how I can give myself the most opportunities for myself. Yeah. (laughs) What books are you reading, Maggie? I am rereading The Way of Kings by Brandon Sanderson. And I'm also reading Get a Life, Chloe Brown by Tabitha or Talia Hibbert. Oh, cool. Cool. I'm still reading Lenny Zuma's Red Clocks, which we're talking about next episode. Um, or the episode after next. And I am reading Twilight. Um, and we'll give you some links to the Quillet tribe. We'll give you some links to the Quillet tribe and how you can help them because they were vastly misrepresented in the Twilight franchise. And also Twilight made a bunch of money. And I don't know if that necessarily went to them. It did um, not. And they live in a, tsunami, in a tsunami zone and they're trying to move to higher ground. So check them out. Yes. People. Yes. Uh, yeah. Is there anything else? Next week, no, we are talking about Parable of the Talents. By Octavia Butler. This is true. Yes. It's very good. Okay. It is very good. Bye, Bye friends! Don't forget to rate and review us on your favorite podcatcher app. You can support this podcast by going to anchor.fm slash RGBC and clicking the support to this podcast button. Our episode schedule can be found in our show notes or by going to medium.com slash rebel-girls-book-club and clicking read along. You can follow us at RGBC Pod on Instagram at Rebel Girls Book Club, on Facebook at Rebel Girls Book One, on Twitter. And you can email us at rebelgirlsbookclub at gmail.com. 
Our theme song is called Pretty Boys Make Me Feel Ugly, and it's by The Gays. See you soon, and remember to read rebelliously.